85 of the 96 references to a lamb in the Old Testament refer to the sacrificial lamb. Lambs were sacrificed as part of the sin offering to provide an atonement or covering for sin. However, those lambs provided only a temporary atonement and as such needed to be offered again and again. Though they could only provide a temporary solution to the sin problem, God chose the lamb to be a type of Christ as revealed in the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. Indeed, in eternity past, Christ was chosen to be the lamb according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2, 23. In the fullness of time, Christ came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29 and 36. Now Christ fulfilled the Lamb type in at least ten ways. First, the sacrificial lambs were born in Bethlehem. Christ was born in Bethlehem. Second, the sacrificial lamb had to be a firstborn male lamb. Christ was the firstborn male child of Mary. Third, the father of the house would choose a sacrificial lamb for his household. God the Father chose Christ to be the lamb in eternity past. Fourth, all sacrificial lambs had to be identified and examined by the priest. Christ was examined and identified as the lamb by John the baptizer, a Levitical priest. Fifth, all sacrificial lambs were purchased in Jerusalem on the Santen, the Great Sabbath. On the Santen, the Great Sabbath, Christ came to Jerusalem and presented himself as the Passover lamb. Sixth, all sacrificial lambs were to be examined for four days to determine it was blemish-free. Christ spent four days being examined by the religious leaders and proven to be free from sin. Seventh, lambs were sacrificed daily at 9 a.m. Christ was hung on the cross at 9 a.m. Eighth, the Passover lambs were slaughtered at 3 p.m. Christ laid down his life and died at 3 p.m. Ninth, all sacrificial lambs shed their blood on the threshold. Christ shed his blood at the threshold of heaven, Jerusalem. And number 10, no bones of the sacrificial lamb were to be broken. When Christ died, not one bone in his body was broken. Indeed, as Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Now, before his incarnation, the taking on of human flesh and nature, Christ existed in the form of God. Philippians 2, 6-8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The term existed, hipparcho, communicates the idea of a person's continuous state or condition. The term form, morphe, denotes nature or character. Hence, Christ's continuous nature and character our God. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And so having the nature and character of God, Christ did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped. Now that word grasped, harpagmas, refers to something seized or stolen. In other words, Christ's equality with God was rightly his. Equality is to have the same quality, value, or measure as another being. See, Christ did not steal or take deity upon himself. He was divine from all eternity. But at his incarnation, Christ took the form of a bondservant. Again, the term form, morphe, denotes the nature or character. The verb taking, lumbano, is to enter into a specific condition or state. You see, Christ existed for all eternity as God, but... At a point in time, he entered into the state of being a bond servant. Becoming a bond servant is the beginning of Christ's self-humiliation. And this self-humiliation involved taking on a state positionally less than the angels. Hebrews 2.9 But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Upon entering into this new state, Christ was made in the likeness of men. Being made, Genomai, is to assume a specific state or condition. He assumed the likeness of men. And the word likeness, homoioma, refers to taking on all the essential characteristics of humanity. In other words, Christ the Lamb was God in human flesh. And when Christ took on the form of a bondservant, he emptied himself. Theologically, this is known as the kenosis. The kenosis. Because the term emptied, kenao, means to divest oneself of something. Now some falsely, have claimed that Christ emptied himself of his deity. Others claim, falsely, that he exchanged his deity for humanity. However, Scripture says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 What Christ emptied himself of, or divested himself of, were certain divine privileges such as his glory. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, divesting himself of these privileges such as glory does not mean that Christ lost his glory. He instead temporarily set it aside or veiled it. So in other words, when people saw Christ, they did not see the radiance of his glory. Instead, they saw a common, ordinary man. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Only Peter, James, and John we're given a glimpse of Christ's glorification that would occur after his death and resurrection. This glimpse of his glorification occurred at the transfiguration. Now on the night before Christ was slaughtered as the Passover lamb, 
He was in the garden praying for his disciples and his impending death. In particular, Christ prayed, though, for his glorification. In John 17, 5, he prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Looking past the cross, Christ desired the glory which he had shared with the Father before the incarnation. He desired that that glorification be restored. And ultimately, Christ's glorification, the glorification of the Lamb, was achieved through his death and resurrection. Luke twenty four twenty six. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? As the slaughtered and resurrected Lamb, Christ was glorified in two ways. He was glorified as the first fruit and glorified as the firstborn. Let's take our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. So as we behold the Lamb and we consider the glorification of the Lamb, we see that the resurrected Lamb is glorified as the first fruit. In the same way that the Passover was all about Christ's death, the Feast of First Fruits is all about His resurrection and glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming. Now the Feast of First Fruits occurs on the day after the Sabbath of the Passover week. This is the day after the weekly Sabbath. Leviticus 23, 9-12. When you enter the land, which I'm going to give you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. So when the first stalks of grain appeared, the Jews cut the stalks and bind them into sheaves for thrashing. However, before being thrashed, the sheaves had to be presented to the priest as an offering to the Lord. And at 6 a.m. on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, the priest waved the sheaf before the Holy of Holies veil to signal that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord. In essence, they were saying, Lord, we want your blessing on the entire harvest. And the offering of the first fruit of the barley harvest was a token of the people's gratitude towards God. It was only after making this offering that the people could reap the benefits of the harvest. Now, in fulfillment of Scripture, Christ died as the Passover lamb with the other Passover lambs at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, Nisan 14, A.D. 29. Since the Feast of Unleavened Bread began at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, and all work was to cease due to it being a Passover Sabbath, Jesus' body was quickly removed from the cross and buried in the tomb. During the next 72-hour period, Christ's body was in the grave. And his soul and spirit went to Sheol, or Hades. Acts 2, 27 and 31. 
because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Now, Sheol, or Hades, was created by God for the devil and his angels. Following the fall of humanity, hell became a place for the soul and spirits of those who died. God graciously created a compartment in hell called paradise, or Abraham's bosom, for the righteous, which was separated from the place of fiery torment by a great chasm. Now, paradise was necessary because Christ had not yet become the payment for sin. And therefore, all those righteous ones who died could not enter into heaven. And so while in Sheol, Christ accomplished two things. First, he went into Tartarus and made a proclamation of victory over Satan to the fallen angels. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Secondly, he went into paradise. Luke 23, 43. He said to him, this is, the, this is Christ speaking to the other thief on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so while in paradise, Christ brought Isaiah 61, 1 to complete fulfillment by proclaiming, quote, liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. You see, those Old Testament era believers in paradise were captives of Sheol, or Hades, literally bound in prison. Now, three days and three nights later, at 6 p.m. Saturday, Nisan 17, Christ the Passover Lamb was gloriously resurrected as Christ the first fruit. Sometime after 6 p.m. while it was dark, on the first day of the week, Nisan 18, Mary Magdalene and the other women came to the tomb and found it empty. And shortly afterwards, Christ met them. Matthew 28, 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they shall see me. John 20 verse 17, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Note Christ's words to Mary Magdalene in John 20, 17. He said, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now the verb clinging, hopto, means to fasten oneself to something or adhere to something. And many commentators purport that clinging means that Mary was trying to keep Christ on earth. Now, to be honest here, folks, there is nothing in John 20 to indicate that the verb clinging means anything more than physically grabbing someone or something. Why then did Jesus command Mary Magdalene to stop clinging to him? Is it possible that what exists here is Christ in some transitory condition? Was there something yet for Christ to do? In short, yes. 
Christ had to be glorified as the first fruit. Now, how was Christ the Lamb glorified as the first fruit? The answer is found in Ephesians 4.8. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul's statement here in Ephesians 4.8 is a quote from Psalm 68.18, a victory song of David. When a conquering general returned from battle, he triumphantly paraded through his hometown with his captives in tow and bearing gifts. 1 Samuel 30, 26-31 Now when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. Thus, when Christ ascended into heaven, on the heels of his resurrection, he returned triumphantly to his home with his captives. However, who were these captives? See, when Christ died, he descended into Sheol or hell. He went to the upper compartment of Sheol, known as paradise, and proclaimed liberty to those who were bound. That is, the Old Testament saints. Christ went to paradise to liberate the Old Testament saints in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 6, and 7. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Paradise was, in a sense, a prison to those saints who died before the death and resurrection of Christ. However, since Jesus paid the penalty for sin, these saints could now enter into the third heaven, the abode of God. In fact, years later, when writing to the Corinthians, Paul recounted how he had been caught up into the third heaven and into paradise. 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So therefore, when Christ told Mary not to cling to him, it was, it's because his glorification was not yet complete. He needed to ascend to heaven with these Old Testament saints. And just before 6 a.m., on the first day of the week, Jesus, as the high priest, ascended into heaven and presented these Old Testament saints as a sheaf offering to the Lord. As such, these Old Testament saints are the first fruit of a more substantial harvest of Israelites which Christ will harvest or save. Jeremiah 2.3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. Romans 11, 1 and 16, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And so just as the first fruits guaranteed that the whole, har whole of the harvest that was to come, so the Old Testament saints ensure the salvation of Israel in the future. And as Jesus consecrated the, those patriarchs, so too he will consecrate 
their descendants. As well, Jesus himself was glorified by becoming the first fruit offering. When he ascended on the first day of the week, Nisan 18, he presented himself to the Father as the wave sheaf offering of the first fruits. And as the first fruit sheaf offering or wave offering, Christ gave notice of a more substantial harvest to follow. Indeed, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the future harvest, the future resurrection of believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, but each in their own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Just as the resurrection led to Christ's glorification, so the resurrection of believers at the rapture will lead to their glorification. Romans 8.30 And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Corinthians 15.51-53 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. And so this ascension into the third heaven led to an immediate descent to the earth. Because later on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. He commissioned them for future ministry and gifted them with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of Psalm 68, 18. John 20, 19, 21, and 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when Christ ascended the first time, he was glorified as the first fruits in the hours following his resurrection. Christ returned to earth and spent the next 40 days preparing the apostles and the other disciples to carry on his ministry of making disciples. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On that 40th day, Christ ascended back into heaven. Acts 1.9 And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. At this second ascension, Christ was glorified as the firstborn. Let's take our Bibles to Colossians 1.18 and see the glorification of the Lamb. The resurrected Lamb is glorified as the firstborn. He was glorified as the firstfruits. Now he's glorified as the firstborn. Colossians 1.18 He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, in the context of Colossians 1.18, Paul revealed several truths about Christ. Namely, that he is not only the Redeemer, but he is God. He is the Creator, 
and sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church and he is the firstborn from the dead. Of all these Christological truths, the final one, the firstborn from the dead, is related to his glorification, which occurred at his second ascension. Christ has always been and will always be God. Christ became the creator and sustainer of all things when the Godhead spoke creation into existence. Christ became the head of the church when he shed his blood on the threshold and initiated the threshold covenant or marriage covenant with all who would repent of their sin and place their faith in his salvific work. But as to the firstborn from the dead, this was not something that Christ could be until he was glorified. Again, as Christ said in Luke 24, 26, he had to suffer death and resurrection so that he could enter into his glory. That glory involved becoming the firstborn from the dead. And so the resurrected lamb is glorified as the firstborn. Now, there is much confusion about the term firstborn. Many see the term and assume that Christ was born chronologically before his brothers and sisters. And while he was Mary's firstborn son in terms of chronology, that is not what is meant here in Colossians 1.18. The term firstborn, prototokos, refers to one who precedes another in decree. Or privilege. From a Jewish perspective, the firstborn is given all the rights and privileges of the father's estate as an inheritance. Now, believers, you and I would do well to remember that simply being born first does not necessarily mean that one could be regarded as the firstborn. Consider the case of Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first, chronologically. However, through a series of events, Jacob became the firstborn, receiving the rights and privileges of the inheritance. As well, the term firstborn, prototakos, also implies that one bearing such a title holds a place of preeminence. In the case of Israel, God appointed them the firstborn among the nations. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In other words, God made them higher in rank than the other nations. Now we need to note that this was not a case of God playing favorites, but instead setting Israel in a position where they would be the nation through which the Passover lamb, who takes away the world's sins, would come. And in the lamb's case, God appointed Christ, the firstborn, the preeminent one. Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If there is any question about the meaning of firstborn, in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, the parallel statement provides the answer. Being God's firstborn or preeminent one means that Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth. Indeed, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. However, this title was not given to Christ until he died, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above 
every name. God has highly exalted or glorified Christ and given him a name or title above every other name or title. Ephesians 1.21 Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Hebrews 2.9 But we do see him who was made up for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That title, that is above all other names or titles, is firstborn. He is the firstborn of creation, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ has preeminence above all creation and over all creatures. He is the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ has preeminence among those who have been adopted into his family, his spiritual family. And he is the firstborn of the dead, Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ has preeminence over death, and as such, lives and will reign as king forever and ever. Now regarding his reign, though Christ reigns in heaven now over his spiritual kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God, he is not yet reigning over the earth. That reign is yet future and is tied to his title firstborn as seen in Revelation 5. Now the chapter opens, first rapture, with the church in heaven standing before God's throne. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I saw in his right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here's God on the throne with a book or scroll in his hand. Now this book is written inside and on the back, indicating it's a scroll written on both sides. As well, note that it is sealed up with seven seals. In the Greco-Roman culture, a scroll with seven seals placed upon it typically contains a person's will. By placing seven seals upon it, it would be difficult to open the scroll without someone taking notice. Thus, God has his will in hand. His will contains the inheritance for his son, which is the title deed to the earth. Indeed, God the Father's original intention in creating the universe was to give the created realm to God the Son as an inheritance. Humanity was created to be the Son's bride in this created realm. But Satan in his jealousy laid claim to this earth and poses as the God of this age. However, this world is not his. 
And when God's will is read and enforced, the title deed to the earth will be given to the Son. An angel asks, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, where is the heir? Where is the firstborn? One of the elders tells John not to weep because Christ the lion has come to open the book and its seven seals. Seeing Christ, John describes him not as a lion but as a lamb standing as if slain. Here is Christ, the Passover lamb, glorified in heaven but still bearing the scars of his torture and crucifixion. However, instead of laying in a tomb, John says that the lamb is standing. That is, he is alive. John continues using anthropomorphic language to describe Christ the lamb. He states that he has seven horns. Animal horns in scripture symbolize the strength or power of a ruler. Hence, Christ the lamb is no longer a defenseless servant. No, now he is the conquering king. And he has been glorified, and all authority, all power has been given unto him. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so Christ takes the scroll out of his Father's hand, because only he is worthy. And why is he worthy? He's worthy because he is the firstborn, the preeminent one. He is the firstborn because he was slaughtered as the Passover lamb. Revelation 5, 9, and 12. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Beginning in Revelation 6, Christ breaks each of the seals upon His Father's will, containing the title deed to the earth. By the end of Revelation, Christ the firstborn receives his inheritance, the earth and all the created realm. After Christ the Lamb receives his inheritance, he will celebrate with his bride, the church, and those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 and 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, without a doubt, Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb chosen by God in eternity past and chosen by humanity on the great Sabbath. He is the Lamb who was slaughtered on the same day and same time as the Passover lambs. He was slaughtered and his precious blood shed in order to redeem humanity. However, the narrative of the Lamb does not end with his slaughter. Indeed, the Lamb of God was not only chosen and slaughtered, he was glorified as the first fruit and firstborn. Friends, behold the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the heavenly Lamb, the conquering Lamb, and the reigning Lamb. And I ask, is this lamb your lamb? Have you received this lamb as your Passover lamb? Have you confessed and forsaken your sin? Repented of your sin? Have you placed your faith in the gospel as revealed in the scriptures that Christ died, buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures? My friends, make no mistake. He must be your lamb. 
or you will not be redeemed. Is He your Lamb? In the words of Revelation 5.13, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the Lamb. Thank You for giving us the opportunity to behold the Lamb the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he was chosen in eternity past, that he was slaughtered on behalf of our sins, the sins of the whole world. And that Father, today he is in heaven glorified. Father, I pray for each one listening, Lord, if they've never come to that place of repenting of their sin and placing their faith in the finished work of the lamb, that today, Father, in the quietness of their heart, they might settle those things with you that they might receive this free gift. That the blood of the Lamb might redeem them from sin, that it might purchase them from the slave market, that it might pay the ransom due to you. And Father God, I pray that Lord, as we consider this Lamb, not just for today, but as we take time to behold the Lamb, to consider the Lamb each and every day, that, Father, we would consider him not just as our Passover lamb, that we would consider him as the heavenly lamb, the conquering lamb, and the reigning lamb. Lord, we look forward to that great and glorious day when we will see the lamb with our own eyes. We pray this things in the lamb's name, the firstfruit and firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ. Amen.